Well, hello and welcome to you all from a cloudy August day in Dorset to episode 28 of our banking litigation podcast, which is for June, uh, sorry, which is for July and August 2021. Time is rushing by. Today, I'm delighted to be um, joined by my co-host, Kerry Morgan, as always. Hello, Kerry. Hi, John. Hello, everyone. And by our guest speaker, Amel Fengor. And behind uh, the glass today, uh, Laura Wiles, without whom this would not happen. As I say, it's cloudy here today, but as I speak, the skies are clearing, and this is apt because the courts have shone some sunshine onto some key legal principles, which we'll be discussing today. Uh, We're going to open with a battle of legal principles, in fact, where we'll be taking a look at two very interesting uh, rules, which um, uh, are often challenged in banking disputes. The first one that I'll be looking at is the SAMCO principle, and the second is the reflective loss principle. Uh, But this session is not just for the legal academics amongst our podcasters. These issues crop up in practice all the time. And the implications for liability in quantum can be immense, uh, as anyone who's been involved in advice or information cases will know. So listen closely and decide which is the winner for you. I think if Kerry can have a favourite duty of care, then I can certainly have some favourite legal rule. And so can you. So let me kick off with the... Uh, heavyweight SAMCO principle and a deep dive into the recent Supreme Court decision in Manchester Building Society in Grant Thornton. I don't think we've covered SAMCO on any recent podcasts. I think we have to go back all the way to February uh, 2019 on our second ever episode um, uh, to when we last covered it. So with the ring of the starting bell, let's get going with round one. The headline point coming out of uh, Manchester Building Society is that we now have a new leading authority on the application of the SAMCO principle, which has, I think it's fair to say, changed the rule quite significantly. And just before we cover the judgment on this one, John, for those listeners who aren't familiar with SAMCO, could you give us a whistle-stop tour of the basic principle? Of course, Kerry, uh, forgive me for having jumped in so quickly. So the case is the South Australia Asset Management Corporation against York Montague, or SAMCO, And that case made it clear that a professional who gives negligent advice will not necessarily be liable for all of the financial loss caused by that advice. The House of Lords in Samco said that the defendant will only be held liable for the loss falling within what they termed the scope of its duty of care. I sense a legal parable heading our way, John. And you're absolutely right, Kerry, because this was um, a a decision of the House of Lords when Lord Hoffman was in it. Um, And it's somewhat inevitable, therefore, that any uh, discussion of Samco must start with Lord Hoffman's illustration um, uh, of the mountaineer's knee, which goes something like this. A mountaineer is planning a difficult climb. He consults his doctor because he's concerned about his knee. And the doctor negligently says that the knee is fit for the climb, which it is not. The mountaineer goes off on the climb and suffers an injury which, whilst a foreseeable consequence of mountaineering, has got absolutely nothing to do with the knee. According to Lord Hoffman, the doctor is not liable. And that remains the position even if the mountaineer would not have gone on the expedition if he had been told the truth about the knee. And it is because of the distinction drawn by Lord Hoffman between a duty to uh, provide information and a duty to provide advice that this comes up. The doctor in the story was providing information only and not advice. And so he was not responsible for the whole decision-making process. He was only responsible 
the consequence of the information he provided being wrong. And so, so what we get from Samco is essentially a, a counterfactual approach or a test for information cases where you have to ask the question, would the loss have been suffered even if the information given had been correct? And if the answer to that question is yes, then the defendant was not responsible for it and therefore not liable for the loss. That's um, that's a really helpful refresher. Thank you, John. So how has that principle been applied in the Manchester Building Society case? Don't thank me, thank Lord Hoffman. Well, in, in the Manchester Building Society case, ML, the Supreme Court has now moved away from Lord Hoffman's formulation. And I think it's fair to say it's a, a big change. But before I get into the detail, I'll summarise uh, quickly the, the facts of, of the particular case. So it, in Manchester Building Society, the defendant auditor, Grant Thornton, gave advice to the Building Society as to the accounting treatment of interest rates swaps for its mortgage portfolio. The auditor advised that the interest rate swaps would allow Building Society to reduce the volatility of the mark-to-market value of the swaps on its balance sheet. But as these things tend to go, some years later, it was discovered that the Building Society could not, in fact, use this method of accounting. And once the accounts were corrected, the Building Society no longer held sufficient regulatory capital and therefore was required to close out of the swaps, incurring a loss of £30 billion. The Court of Appeal took the traditional approach of trying to determine whether this was an advice case or an information case, uh, and found that it was an information case, which then shifted the burden of proof to the Building Society to prove the counterfactual. In other words, that it would not have uh, suffered the same loss if the information had been correct. But it couldn't do that because it would have suffered the same loss if it had held the swaps to full term. The discovery of the auditor's negligent advice merely crystallised the loss early on. Mm, I find I find that approach quite tricky because it's so binary. It means you can end up with such incredibly different results depending on which side of the line, whether it's information or advice, the case falls when it's not always clear cut as to which category a case should be in. Well, Amel, um, you'd be pleased to hear the Supreme Court agreed with you uh, and it's now done away um, with the description um, of information and advice as a term of art in this area. So we don't need to worry uh, now about shoehorning a particular case into one category or the other, at least formally. So instead, the court said that the, um, the focus should be on the purpose of the defendant's duty, judged objectively by reference to the purpose of the advice. So in practice, this will mean looking to see what the, the risk the duty was supposed to guard against, and then seeing whether the loss suffered represented the fruition of that risk. The counterfactual test should only be used as a tool to cross-check the result, rather than um, being the test that gives rise to the answer. I see. So, And what did the Supreme Court say the purpose of the advice was in this case? Well, the Supreme Court held that the, the auditor's purpose was to provide technical accounting advice as to whether the building society could use hedge accounting in order to implement the proposed business model within the constraints of the regulatory environment. But because the auditor's uh, advice was negligent, the building society adopted the, the business model that it did and ultimately ended up having to, to break the swaps. Uh, and that was a risk which the auditor's advice was supposed to allow the building society to assess. But the, the auditor's negligence caused the building society to fail to understand the risk. So as a result, 
the Supreme Court found that the losses suffered by the building society when breaking the swaps were within the scope of the duty uh, owed by the auditor. In other words, going um, the opposite way from the Court of Appeal. And look, I should note that it wasn't a complete knockout for the building society, as the court also held that the uh, damages would be subject to a 50% reduction for contributory negligence. But the, the key point I'm trying to hone in on here is that the focus has shifted in some coastal cases towards the purpose to be served by the duty of care that a defendant assumes. And that the effect of that should be to alleviate some of the challenges faced by parties and courts in distinguishing between advice cases and information cases, uh, but also in applying the correct version of the counterfactual test that we have just discussed. So John, I've always found the counterfactual test an odd one, so I will not be uh, sad to see the back of it personally. But I do worry that we've just moved the debate, which will now focus on the purpose of the professional's advice and the potential risks it was intended or indeed not intended to guard against. I, I think you're absolutely right, Kerry, and the, and the proof of the pudding will be in the proverbial when these cases uh, following uh, Manchester Building Society, the Supreme Court, um, begin to go to court or um, uh, into into disputes. It'll be particularly difficult where engagements are not properly documented. So I think the judgment certainly highlights the importance for financial institutions of ensuring at the outset of a transaction that there is a clear agreement with their clients as to how their advice will be used. Good point, John. And of course, we do have a blog post on this one. Uh, yes, we do indeed. And if you're interested in a bit more detail, you can find the link, as ever, in the show notes. Now, um, on to round two, and I'll be handing over to Amel uh, to introduce our challenger, the reflective loss principle. Amel, over to you. Thank you. Thanks for that introduction, John. Yes, I'm going to look at the so-called reflective loss principle and the recent decision of the Court of Appeal in Broadcasting Investment Group against Smith, which we'll refer to as BIG. And uh, again, Amel, before we get into the weeds, could you tell us a little bit more about the principle first? Sure. Um, so a bit of history. The origins of the legal rule are in the case of um, Foss and Harbottle, which established that a company itself is the proper claimant to recover loss resulting from any injury done to the company. Um, Foss and Harbottle is a 19th century case, but the principle re uh, really became prominent in the 1982 case of prudential assurance against Newman Industries, which looked at this in the context of a shareholder claim. And the court in Prudential said that a shareholder cannot bring a claim based on any fall in the value of their shares or distributions where that fall in value is due to loss suffered by the company and where the company also has a cause of action against the same wrongdoer. The court held that the claimant shareholder couldn't recover that loss because it was merely a reflection of the loss suffered by the company, hence the term reflective loss. And several cases since then have considered the reflective loss principle. But it all came to a head last year with the important Supreme Court decision in Sevilleja against Marex. Well I hope I got that pronunciation right. <laughs> Thank you. Bringing some much needed clarity to the application of the principle, which had been likened to a legal version of Japanese knotweed for its potentially wide application. Well, until Marex, that is. In that decision, the Supreme Court unanimously held that the principle should be applied no further than to shareholder claims and specifically does not extend to prevent claims brought by creditors. So how does uh, all of this apply to the BIG and Smith decision, Amel? 
In BIG, the Court of Appeal held that a shareholder's claim will not be barred by the reflective loss principle, and this is the key, where that shareholder is also a contractual promisee or beneficiary, and where the company in which the shares are owned has acquired the right to bring a claim in respect of the same contract against the same wrongdoer, pursuant to Section 1 of the Contracts Right of Third Parties Act 1999. So we're looking at the situation here where both the shareholder and the company have a cause of action, but the company only has a claim because of the 1999 Act. Um, The High Court had interpreted Section 4 of the 1999 Act, which contains the contractual promises right to enforce a contract, i.e. here the right of the shareholder, as being subject to generally applicable legal principles such as the reflective loss principle. But the Court of Appeal overturned this, stating that to interpret prudential independently of the rights prescribed in the 1999 Act was entirely artificial. Um, The High Court's decision had the effect of sidestepping the limitations imposed by Section 4 to protect the rights of the contractual promisee, and effectively it extinguished the promisee's right to enforce the contract, which was impermissible by statute. So in the Court of Appeal's view, since the company's right was conferred by the 1999 Act, it was subject to the terms and limitations imposed by that statute. Crumbs. Uh, Okay, so what do you think is the key takeaway for financial institutions, Amel? Well, many in-house lawyers at banks will have been following the developments to the reflective loss principle since Marex, particularly as so many cases were stayed pending the Supreme Court's decision. Um, And this is because of the important role the rule plays in the defence of shareholder claims brought against banks. In my view, the decision in BIG doesn't narrow the reflective loss principle any further than Marex because the rationale is based on the effect of the 1999 Act and its very specific wording. Um, However, it does demonstrate that this is a complicated area and novel scenarios may throw up new issues which need to be considered on a case-by-case basis. Um, It's also worth mentioning that there were some helpful obiter comments as to whether the reflective loss principle should bar claims by an indirect or quasi-shareholder, so where there's a chain of shareholder ownership. And the Court of Appeal said that it was well arguable that the reflective loss principle can apply to indirect shareholders in appropriate circumstances. Well, that's sure to be a very welcome addition from a financial institution perspective. Indeed. And um, if you do want to dive deeper into the background of this case, you can see our banking integration blog post on the decision. Well, yes, our link as ever is in the show notes. And John, as our official referee, I'm curious to know if we have a champion in the contest of Samco versus Reflective Loss. Well, I won't tell you what my favourite is, uh, Kerry. I have to put that to the podcasters uh, for uh, uh, a vote. It's funny how funny um, how cases stick in the memory, and Laura can edit this out if I'm wrong. Uh, Foss and Harbottle, two hair four six one. Uh, sorry, two. Here, yeah, 461, I think, is the citation. But anyway, for another time. Thank you, Amel, for an excellent summary. Uh, Kerry, I think you're up now for a quick court of appeal decision on remedies, damages in particular. Yeah. Yeah, indeed, John. I think we need to have some sort of sticker chart for you and your recollection of citations. You're wrong. Uh, (laughs) Although I'm not sure it's to be encouraged. Um, So the case I'll be looking at today is Glossop and Contract Print and Packaging, uh, which, as John suggested, provides some recent clarification on the proper approach to assessing damages for fraudulent misrepresentation claims. 
Although I have to say the case itself was not set in a financial services context, the judgment will be relevant to financial institutions faced with claims founded in the tort of deceit. And I'm thinking here particularly in the context of mis-selling disputes and securities litigation. So very briefly on the facts, uh, the Court of Appeal considered the fraudulent misrep claim of a purchaser against the sellers of certain business assets that it had acquired. And the key question for the court was the correct measure of damages to apply. The Court of Appeal applied the general rule for the measure of damages in deceit claims as per Smith New Court Securities, which meant assessing damages by ascertaining the actual value of the assets bought at the relevant date, i.e. the transaction date, and deducting from that figure the price paid. So I'm flagging this case because the House of Lords in Smith New Court Securities emphasised that the general rule should not be mechanistically applied. Um, however, the Court of Appeals decision in Glossop suggests that the general rule will in fact be the norm and that there's a threshold question as to whether an alternative measure of damages may be applied. Kerry, you mentioned that the decision will be relevant in a securities litigation context, and I can see that, but are there any particular read-across points that you'd like to highlight? Yes, thank you, Amal. So the decision will clearly be relevant to securities claims based on alleged fraudulent misrepresentation. Um, under the general rule in Smith New Court Securities, damages will be assessed on the date on which the securities were purchased, again, the transaction date. And this means that the amount of damages will be calculated as the difference between the price paid for the shares and their actual or their true value as at the transaction date. And as a result of the decision in Glossop, claimants may find uh, that they face additional challenges where they try to depart from the general rule. For example, by seeking to recover the difference between the price paid for the shares and the amount realised on disposal of the shares. That's interesting because it's often one of the methods by which damages are calculated by claimants in, in that type of claim. Yeah, exactly. And that's why this one caught my eye. Um, it's an attractive option for claimants where there's been a later fall in the value of the shares due to some separate event. But the upshot of the decision in Glossop is that this sort of argument might be a bit more tricky. So if you want to read more about the decision in a bit more detail, then please do check out our blog post. There's a link in the show notes. Thank you very much, Kerry, uh, as ever, for a very comprehensive summary. Well, um, we've given our podcasters a blow-by-blow account of three recent cases, but before we throw in the towel and with seconds out, we're going to finish this episode off with a round of regulatory updates and legal reform. Amel, I think you're going to take this for us. Sure. Uh, So first, we have a quick note on one of the jurisdiction and enforcement queries that have arisen from the UK's exit from the EU. Uh, This one concerns the Lugano Convention, which, for those who aren't familiar, attempts to clarify which national courts have jurisdiction in cross-border civil and commercial disputes and uh, ensures that subsequent judgments can be forced, enforced across borders. Our update is that the European Commission has presented a notice to the Lugano Depository, which states that the European Union is not in a position to consent to the UK's accession to the Convention in its own right, which the UK applied for in April of last year. This won't come as a surprise to those who follow the story, as the Commission has already made clear its view that the EU should not consent to the UK's application to accede. And while the decision on the UK's accession is one for the EU Council to make, the Council is yet to put any such proposal to a vote. Overall, it seems unlikely now that the UK will accede to the Lugano Convention, which is all pretty frustrating. 
Um, however, in better news, it looks like the EU will join the 2019 Hague Judgments Convention. If the UK also signs up, that would significantly streamline the enforcement of judgments, judgments between the UK and the EU. Of course, that will only deal with enforcement rather than jurisdiction. Uh, finally, Kerry has some news for those who've been following the government proposals for shaking up the UK's prospectus regime. I do indeed. Thank you, Amal. So uh, just before we're saved by the bell, I will finish today's episode off with a quick update on the much anticipated HM Treasury consultation on fundamental reforms to the prospectus regime, promising the biggest shakeup since 2005. The consultation follows Lord Hill's review of the UK listing regime earlier this year. And just as a reminder, the aim of the Hill Review was to reform the UK listing regime to attract the most innovative and successful firms and help companies access the finance needed to grow. In response to this, HMT's consultation suggests some bold reforms, which will certainly change the game for those operating within the capital markets sphere. We have considered these reforms through a securities litigation lens on our blog, focusing on the impact the proposed changes are likely to have on claims under Section 90 FISMA for liability for prospectuses and listing particulars. So if this piques your interest, then please head over to read more uh, on our banking litigation blog. You can find a link to the relevant post in the show notes. Well, thank you, Kerry, and thank you for such a thoroughly uh, researched um, piece there. Well, look, um, podcasters, something to reflect on over the summer. If you're looking for some poolside summer reading, can I commend to you our wonderful show notes? Uh, we look forward to seeing you again in the autumn for an episode which promises to be both mellow and fruitful. But until then, thank you to our guest speaker, Amel. Thank you, Kerry, my co-host, for uh, a wonderful show. And thank you to Laura behind the glass for making it all happen. Podcasters, have a wonderful summer and see you in the autumn. Thank you.